Well, if we could, this evening, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and as we said, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but if we just take as our text the words of verses 20 and 21. So Philippians 3 at verse 20, where Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now it's often been said that there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who are in Christ and there are those who are still in Adam. And when the gospel is preached, that distinction becomes more apparent because the Bible it clearly sets out these two positions where everyone in the world is in either one of these two positions. They're either in Christ or they're, they're in Adam. They're saved or they're unsaved. They're a Christian or they're not a Christian. They're found or they're lost. They're on the narrow path or they're on the broad road. They're wise or they're foolish. They're a sheep or they're a goat. They're righteous or they're unrighteous. They're a saint or a sinner. They're bound for heaven or they're bound for hell. There are only two types of people in this world. And you know, this is what Paul is drawing our attention to in chapter 3. He's drawing our attention to our position in Christ. But Paul isn't questioning our position in Christ because he says, as we've just read in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. So as a Christian tonight, our position is safe. Our position is secure because we are citizens of the new Jerusalem. But the reason Paul is raising the issue of position in Christ, it was because there were false teachers in Philippi who were questioning the position of the Christians there. But Paul, he's seeking to remind the Philippians and ultimately he's reminding us that we have a joyful position in Christ. We have a joyful position in Christ. Now, last week, uh, Paul spoke about our joyful progression in the Christian life and the res- our responsibility in the work of sanctification. But in this chapter, in chapter 3, Paul says that we must never forget our joyful position as a Christian because of our justification. Justification is key to this whole chapter. And Paul says that in order to remember your joyful position as a Christian, he says there must be losing, leaning, and looking. So in order to remember your joyful position as a Christian, there must be losing, leaning, and looking. So there are three headings this evening. Losing, leaning, and looking. So we'll look first of all at losing. Paul speaks about losing. Look at... The beginning of the chapter in verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus 
and put no confidence in the flesh. Now notice that before Paul says anything about their position in Christ, Paul reminds the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. That's the first thing he says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul reminds the Philippians that the purpose of his letter is that we have Christian joy. And as we've said before, Paul mentions rejoicing or joy at least 16 times in his letter. And in doing so, Paul is trying to remind the Philippians and us that that even though we may have doubts or worries that would attempt to steal our Christian joy, we can still have that Christian joy while we're sorrowing or struggling or suffering or even serving. We can have true Christian joy of knowing Jesus as our Savior, whether we are sorrowing, struggling, suffering or serving. And so Paul, he urges the Philippians to rejoice. And they're to rejoice because they have a joyful position in Christ. But as we said, the reason Paul was saying all this was because there were false teachers in Philippi who were trying to undermine the gospel. And these false teachers, they were actually converted Jews. But they claimed that even as converted Jews, they said that you had to still uphold all the Old Testament laws and, all, and keep all the ceremonies. And they were teaching, their teaching was so vicious that Paul describes these false teachers as wild dogs. Because like wild dogs, who are dangerous, they would attack people and spread disease. Paul says that these false teachers, they were dangerous. They were attacking the Christian church and they were spreading their disease of false doctrine. And Paul says, look out for them. Be aware of them. Be alert to their false teaching and their false doctrine. Because he says they're evildoers. They mutilate the flesh and they're wild dogs. So stay away from them. And it seems that these false teachers, they were everywhere in the early church. Because as we saw a few months ago when we looked at the letter to the Colossians, they encountered similar problems. The false teachers in Colossae, they were making the same claims as the false teachers here in Philippi, that the church lacked something in their Christianity. And the false teachers had said that in order for them to be proper disciples of Jesus, they needed something more in order to have that full Christian experience. And the message which the false teachers proclaimed, it was a message of Jesus plus. Jesus plus your knowledge. Jesus plus your good works. Jesus plus your law keeping, Jesus plus your circumcision. The false teachers, they stressed a message of Jesus plus and it left the church and the Christians feeling inferior and inadequate and thinking that they lacked something in their Christianity. And the result was that they began to doubt their salvation. They questioned whether or not they were genuine Christians and they lacked confidence in the finished work of Christ. And because of all this, the Philippians, they weren't joyful in their salvation. They had lost sight of their joyful position that they had as a Christian. But Paul reminds them about their joyful position by saying in verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And what Paul is saying is that 
The message of Jesus plus, it serves no purpose whatsoever. Paul says our salvation is not Jesus plus our knowledge or Jesus plus our good works or Jesus plus our our law keeping or Jesus plus our circumcision. Paul says our salvation is not even Jesus plus our Bible reading. Jesus plus our prayer life. Jesus plus our church attendance. Jesus plus our upbringing. Our salvation, he says, is not Jesus plus our church membership. Jesus plus the fact that we hold office in the church as an elder. Or Jesus plus our tithing. No, Paul wants to make this absolutely clear. That our salvation is not Jesus plus. And you know, in order to make this emphasis, Paul He begins to speak from personal experience. And he says in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law a Pharisee. As to zeal a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law blameless. Paul says that if these false teachers think that they have a reason to boast, to boast that they're a proper Christian for keeping all these Old Testament laws and upholding all the ceremonies, Paul says, I have more. And what Paul proceeds to give to us in verses 4 to 6 is his religious CV. Paul says, this is how I thought I was going to have a right standing with God and get into heaven. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was according to the law of God. I was of the people of Israel. I was from God's elect nation. The nation that was precious to God. But more than that, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And as the tribe of Benjamin, it was upon our land that the city of Jerusalem was built. And it was upon our land that the temple was, was situated. My family heritage, the tribe of Benjamin... It was one of the most loyal tribes to the Lord. In fact, says Paul, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I had two Jewish parents. I was a thoroughbred Jew. I was brought up in a Jewish home. I was taught to read and to recite the Torah. I knew the law so well that I even became a Pharisee. And I was so zealous that I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. I put these people to death. Moreover, says Paul, when it came to righteousness, I was blameless. And you know, prior to his conversion, Paul thought that if God was going to accept anyone as righteous, it was going to be him. Paul thought that all his works, his law keeping, his upholding all these ceremonies, just like the false teachers were doing, Paul thought that all these things were going to give him a right standing with God and get him into heaven. But look at what Paul says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
And you know, when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, it was then that Paul discovered what God's righteousness really was. For years, Paul had foolishly thought that he had attained all of God's righteousness by his works. But when he met with Jesus, he knew instantly that his righteousness was as filthy rags. And Paul says that whatever gain I thought I had, I now count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. And what Paul is saying is that everything he had put onto the scales, claiming that these things would work towards his salvation and his righteousness before God, all his law-keeping, all his nationality, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, his upbringing, his works of righteousness, all these things that he thought were making a gain towards heaven, everything he was and everything he did, Paul thought all these things were doing him good. But you know, when he met with Jesus, when he had an encounter with Christ, he saw himself for what he really was. And he realized that all these things he thought were gain were actually serving as a loss for him. All these things he thought were giving him riches in heaven were actually making him have a poverty in hell. But when Paul had an encounter with Christ, it caused him to see the bankruptcy of his own condition. And he said, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For the sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul considers gaining Christ to be of surpassing worth in comparison to the reputation he had and the family he was brought up in and the security he held as a Pharisee. And he considers all these things, as well as his own righteousness, he considers it all to be nothing but dumb. And you know, it's such a vivid description. Paul considers his security, his self-righteousness. He says, it's all dumb. It's rubbish. It's waste. It's just manure. It's nothing but dumb. And Paul says that when he came to this realization of loss, he knew that he needed a righteousness that was not his own. It had to be a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And my friend, that's the joyful position Paul is speaking about here. That when we commit our life to Jesus Christ by faith, we receive a joyful position as a Christian, all because of our justification. And, you know, contrary to the false teaching that the Philippians were being bombarded with, our joyful position, it doesn't depend upon Jesus plus. Our joyful position it only depends upon faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. I know that's our catechism. That's what it teaches us. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Therefore, our joyful position, it's not what we do for Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. 
And you know, this is something we should never forget because we can so easily slip into a religion of self-righteousness rather than a relationship of enjoying Christ's righteousness. We can slip into this religion where we think that what we're doing is pleasing God, making us more righteous. But the reality is we're meant to just enjoy this relationship which we have. We are to enjoy being righteous through Christ. Because the wonder of the gospel is that this Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin, also that we, poor wretched sinners, could be made the righteousness of God in him. And that righteousness, which we have tonight, it doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't ebb and flow. It doesn't peak or trough. My friend, we are as righteous tonight as we will be in heaven. We are as righteous tonight as we will be when we stand in glory. Because we have received the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why John says, when we see him, we will be like him. We're righteous. Made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in this chapter that in order to remember your joyful position as a Christian, there must be losing. You have to lose self in order to gain Christ. But Paul says that there also has to be leaning. So losing and leaning. Leaning. Look at verse 10. Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, there was a recent survey carried out by a theological college, and they wanted to address any deficiencies that uh, may have arisen in their theological program. And the questionnaire that was asked all the, the graduating theology students, they were to identify one area in which they could have received better instruction. Because, well, after three or four years of intense training, uh, the students, they would have been taught the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. They would have been taught the Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, uh, church history, Bible exposition, and, and, lots, and lots more. But now leaving college with, after this intense training, the questionnaire asked, where do you feel most unprepared? Where do you feel most unprepared? And you know, the answer which many of the theological graduates came back with was, how do I live the Christian life? How do I live the Christian life? And you know, what it ought to show us is that it doesn't matter how much of the Bible we know or have been taught. We all wrestle with the question of how to put it into practice. It doesn't matter whether someone is a new convert or they've been a Christian for 40 years or more. It doesn't matter whether they sit in the pew or stand in the pulpit. 
We all struggle to live out the truths of the Bible in our day-to-day lives. Because growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, it involves many things. Growing in grace, it demands that we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus daily. Growing in grace insists that we confess our sin and we repent of it. Growing in grace requires our obedience in coming to the Lord's table and remembering his death. Growing in in grace means walking in personal fellowship with Jesus and with his people. Growing in grace involves living in light of the second coming of Christ and actively seeking to share the gospel with those who are lost. Growing in grace, it insists that we put on the whole armor of God daily and stand firm against all the schemes of the devil. And so, my friend, growing in grace, it requires commitment. It requires the desire to love the Lord more deeply, to follow the Lord more closely, to walk with the Lord more humbly, to serve the Lord more faithfully. And you know, that's what Paul is describing here. He's describing his desire as a Christian. He's already told us that he has received this joyful position as a Christian by faith. And he's righteous in God's sight. He knows he's righteous in God's sight. But Paul says that the outworking of knowing his joyful position as a Christian, Paul says, is that he has to He has this desire to be more and more like Jesus. And Paul describes his desire so vividly because he says that he's leaning towards it. He's pressing forward. He's straining onward in order to fulfill his desire. But what is Paul's desire? He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to know Jesus more deeply, more personally, more intimately. He wants to know more of Jesus' teaching, more of his fellowship. Paul wants to have more communion with Christ. Because by knowing more about Jesus, Paul is certain that he will experience more of the power of the resurrection in his life. My friend, Paul's desire is that the power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead... His desire is that that power will be at at work in his life more and more and more. But Paul also knows that his desire to be more like Jesus, it doesn't make for an easier life. No, he says that it will cause him to have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. He says that it may even make him become like Jesus in his death. Paul knew that persecution was inevitable and martyrdom, well, it's a real possibility if he wants to be like Jesus. Paul understood that the more he grew to know Christ and to make him known, the more he was going to suffer for him. And now Paul, he says all this, not to boast that his desires were better than ours or better than the Philippines. He doesn't, he's not boasting. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul, he doesn't make himself out to be the super Christian, who's better than everyone else. Because Paul, he's acknowledging that he didn't, he hasn't come to this spiritual 
point in his life where he could say that he's now arrived at being a true Christian and a real disciple. He's not saying, I've reached the top of the ladder now. No, Paul is saying, I know I'm not perfect. I know I don't know Jesus the way I want to know him. But you know, what Paul is revealing to us is that the desire was there. The desire to know Jesus more deeply was there. The desire to have closer fellowship with Jesus was there. The desire to know more of the power of the resurrection in his life, that's what was there. Paul had desire. He had a longing. Paul was leaning. He's pressing on to fulfill all his desire. And this word, pressing on, or I press on, Paul is giving to us the illustration of a sprinter on the running track. Now, you know, when I think of a sprinter on the running track, the first person that comes to mind is Usain Bolt. He's running towards the finish line. The mind of the sprinter is focused. His desire is to reach the end. And as the sprinter runs, he, he widens his stride, he he pumps his arms, he accelerates his legs and he, he pushes out his chest. And you see them, they're leaning forward, leaning forward to reach the finish line. And Paul says, that's what my desire is like. It's like the sprinter on the running track. I'm not trying to beat anyone else in the race. It's not about that, he says. But I'm pressing on to make Jesus my own because he has made me his own. My friend, Paul knew that he had received this joyful position of righteousness in Christ. And now his desire is to know Jesus more and more. And you know, needless to say, Paul is giving to us a great example of what our desire should be as a Christian. And that we should keep striving to know Jesus more intimately, more personally, every day of our lives. And yes, sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes it's a struggle to read your Bible. Sometimes it's a struggle to pray. Sometimes it's a struggle to come to church and to come to the prayer meeting. But this is what Paul is encouraging us to do. To keep pressing on. To keep striving forward. And just in case we don't know how to do that, Paul says in verses 13 and 14, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that in order to be leaning forward, in order to lean forward towards the goal, we have to forget what lies behind. We have to put all our failures and all our shortcomings and all our worldly desires and all our pursuits and passions that have no bearing on our Christian life. He says, forget them. Press on towards the goal. And then you'll receive the prize at the finish line. And what's the prize? The prize, he says, is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize, he says, is heaven. That's where you're going. So keep your mind on that. The prize is being completely free of sin and uncleanness. The prize is seeing Jesus face to face. The prize is finally meeting the person who gifted you this righteousness. This joyful position of righteousness. That's the prize. Meeting Jesus face to face. But you know, Paul wants to ensure that when he receives his upward call, 
He wants to ensure that he's not shuffling down the track, having lost sight of the finish line and become lazy in his Christianity. No, Paul wants to ensure that he still has this energy, this desire, this prize in his mind and in his sight. Paul wants to ensure that until the moment he leaves this world, he's still still striving, still longing, still leaning forward to know Christ more and be like Christ as much as he can. And you know, that's how we're to live our Christian lives. We're not to be shuffling. We're not to be shuffling down the track, slowly making our way towards the finish line. No, Paul says, you're to be striving, pressing, pushing, leaning towards the prize. Because the prize, it's Jesus. That's the upward call. You meet Jesus face to face. But you know, how do we keep leaning? How does anyone keep leaning in this world with so much resistance well he says you keep looking if you want to keep leaning you keep looking and that's what we see thirdly and I know time is going but we'll keep going Paul, so Paul says in this chapter that in order to remember your joyful position as a Christian there must be losing leaning and looking losing leaning and looking so look at verse 15 he says let those of us who are immune uh, sorry who are mature, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul says that in order to remember your joyful position as a Christian, you must keep leaning and keep looking. And Paul says that we're to look to his example, the example that he's just set out for us in the previous verses. But more than that, Paul says that we're to look to the example of those around us. And when Paul says this, he's referring to the elders of the church in Philippi. Because as elders in the church, they were to be examples to the congregation. And they were to exemplify their joyful position as a Christian. They were to exemplify the the fact that they've lost all things for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. They were to exemplify what it means to be leaning forward towards the prize of the upward call of God. They were to exemplify what it is to keep looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. As elders, they were to be an example to their congregation of losing, leaning and looking. And you know, I take it to myself. And as elders, we should take it to ourselves that we must never forget that as elders, we are to be an example to our congregation. Even if I can say it, elders' wives, you're to be an example to the congregation, to the young Christian, to the unconverted. As Christians, we're all to be an example of losing, leaning, and looking. We have to be an example to our congregation of having received this joyful position of righteousness in Christ. Because if we're not an example, then someone else will be. And that's what Paul was afraid of for the Philippians. He was afraid that they would follow the worldly example of the false teachers. He says in verse 18, For many of you, 
Oh, sorry, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so what Paul is saying is that as elders, as elders' wives, as Christians, we're to be godly examples to our congregation. We're to lead our congregation by our example. Because if we don't, the world is ready to lead them. And the world is ready to lead them astray. And you know, all that Paul is emphasizing here is the need for discipleship. Because our growth in godliness, it's enhanced when we're influenced by the right spiritual mentor. As one commentator says, every Christian today needs to have the example of a mature believer before them. For wise is the believer who has several such people in their life as mentors and leaders. But misguided is the believer who thinks that they have no need of these types of influences. So my friend, every Christian must be an example to others in our congregation because whether we're aware of it or not, we're all being watched. They're observing how we live our lives. They're watching our actions and our reactions. They're listening to our words and how we treat other people. And you know, it should make us realize that we have a great responsibility in how we conduct ourselves and how we live as an example to others. Because as Paul reminds us in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. So we are to imitate what heaven is like. This world is a foreign land. We're strangers here. We're pilgrims on the earth. We don't belong here. So we shouldn't act like we belong here. We shouldn't act like we belong in this world. In our joyful position as a Christian, we should be losing, leaning, and looking towards the prize of the upward call. We should live knowing that our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As Christians, we should be losing, leaning, and looking. Looking towards the prize of the upward call. As you know, as many of you will know, my granny passed away a couple of weeks ago. And, well, her citizenship was in heaven. She was a Christian for many years. But you know, I always, I always remember when the council came and put up a passing place sign right outside her gate. She lived on a narrow street in Garikirin. And she came outside as they were putting it up. And I remember being there that day. And she just looked at it and said with a little smile, so true, this world is just a passing place. And of course, she could say that and every Christian can say that. Because we've come to discover our joyful position of being righteous in Christ. And that's what it's all about. Having this joyful position and knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. And so in this chapter, Paul reminds us about our joyful position as a Christian. And he says that in order to remember our joyful position as a Christian, there must be losing, leaning and looking.
looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So may the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for what we have received in Christ. That thy word reminds us that we have received every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Help us, Lord, we pray, to know that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. And help us then, we pray, in this life, not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where Jesus is, and to know that we might keep pressing on towards this prize, the prize of the upward call of God, to be brought face to face with this Saviour, the Saviour who loved us and gave himself for us. O oh, that thou wouldest spur us on, that thou wouldest help us to keep going, to keep pressing, that when we're tired and weary and burdensome, when the world, the flesh and the devil seem to be against us, help us, Lord, to keep leaning and to keep looking, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Oh, do us good, Lord, we ask thee. Keep us, we pray, and continue with us, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we'll bring our service to a conclusion by singing the words of Psalm 32. Psalm 32, page 243 in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 32, we're singing the, verse, the first two verses and then the last two verses. And this psalm, it, it reminds us about our justification, our joyful position, that we are righteous in Christ. Because the psalmist says, O blessed is the man to whom is freely pardoned all the transgression he hath done, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not his sin, and in whose spirit there is no guile, nor fraud is found therein. And then we'll sing verses 10 and 11. So Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and 10 and 11, to God's praise.